why don't we just read our short passage now. Um, again, I haven't got a formal reader. Someone can volunteer or I can read it because it's a short passage. Uh, Matthew 13, sorry, 31 to 35. I made the screen go blank too early. So we are in, we're doing a series in Matthew 13 called Stories from the King. It's about Jesus' parables and we've looked at the purpose of parables and uh, then we looked into the meaning of the parable of the sower. And what we've got here are two many, many parables and a little bit extra in verses 31 to 35. Um, And we've jumped ahead here because you'll see in verse 36 that um, Jesus explains the parable of the weeds in the field. So the little bit we've jumped is the parable of the weeds, and we're going to look at that next week. Um, But we're going to zoom in here on some very, very uh, short parables um, to see a little bit more about the purpose of parables, why Jesus spoke in parables, and um, how we might learn from him. So um, with that in mind, does someone want to read verse 31 to 35? Matt? Can I do? Thank you. Uh, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all your seeds. Yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air may come and pop, and the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was, what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. Oh, lots of things hidden since the creation of the world. Thank you very much. Um, another discussion group. Um, for those of you who have been here over the last couple of, the week, of weeks, so those who haven't, you can relax a little bit and allow your neighbour to tell you something. What is the purpose of Jesus' parables? What have we seen so far? What pictures and images have we used to try and describe the purpose of Jesus' parables? Turn to one another and see if you can remember. Any any particular insights? Can you remember what we were what we were talking about? Someone who wasn't here over the last couple of weeks. What's your neighbour said? And we'll we'll work out whether they were accurate or not. We were talking about automatic doors. Okay. And if you they open, if you are trying to Oh, okay. Yeah, we we got a, um, a a slight a slight change in the analogy, but it's, the automatic doors was definitely there. So John, John's right from that point. Of view. John, John's added a little bit. We also had automatic door. You automatic. Also, you need to uh, like kind of do something with it, chew it on it, chew on it, work it out, sort of thing. Yes. So the more you get the opportunity to dwell on the parables. The better. Yes. <laughs> what I was trying to say, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, so that image of automatic doors is a helpful one. If you just look back again um, to verse 13 of chapter 13, Jesus says, This is why I speak to them in parables. Those seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding, never ever seeing but never perceiving. Uh, But then verse 16, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. And he's made a distinction between 
the people who've come close to listen to ask questions about the parables in verse 11. Let's have a look at that again. Jesus replied, so they, they ask him the question, verse 10, why do you speak to the people in parables? Jesus replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. It seems divisive, and it is divisive. It's divisive between those who want to come close and ask Jesus, what do these parables mean? And those who think, oh, he's chatting now, I'm not interested anymore, and walk away. And so the, the image of the automatic doors is helpful because if you come close to automatic doors, they open and let you in and you can see what's inside. But if you stay back and just look from a distance and go, oh, that's vaguely interesting, but not really, and walk away, well, they remain close to you. And you don't get to experience the wonder of what's inside. And so that's why I think that illustration is helpful. And we're going to see a little bit more of that um, in this little section. And so... Firstly, before we dig into these very short parables, we're going to look at Matthew's comment um, at the end of the section that Matt read for us in verses 34 and 35. Uh, Matthew gives us even more insight into why Jesus spoke in parables. Jesus spoke all these things in the crowd, to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things since the creation of the world, things hidden since the creation of the world. And what we've got here is Matthew seeing, ah, Jesus is doing what the Old Testament looks forward to. And Matthew's focusing on Psalm 78. And you don't need to turn back to Psalm 78. I was going to get you to do it until I started to do some serious prep. And it's a very, very long psalm. So I'm not going to get you to turn back there because the first couple of verses of Matthew 78, uh, uh, sorry, of Psalm 78, are quoted there by Matthew. I'll, I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter hidden things since the creation of the world. And then what happens in Psalm 78 is that the psalmist then recounts the history of Israel, uh, right from the very beginnings, from Abraham through Moses and so on, right down to King David, and he explains the whole history of God's rescue plan. And he ends in Psalm 78 with David. He ends with the fact that God chose David to be the great king who would rescue Israel. And yet David came from seemingly insignificant roots to be the rescuer, the shepherd, the king of God's people. And so what the psalmist does is this great history of Israel and then says, you see, David was a picture of how God's going to rescue his people. And what we saw in the first uh, sermon on Matthew 13, if we go back again, sort of giving you a bit of a a technical oversight here, Uh, but if we go back to verse 17 of Matthew 13, so just uh, have a look at verse 17. Uh, Jesus, having said, bless your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Well, what do you see and hear? Well, truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it, and hear what you hear but did not hear it. Prophets and righteous people, that's Old Testament believers, who had the whole of the Old Testament at their fingertips, but kept having this this mystery, these secrets, of how is God going to bring this puzzle together? How is his rescuer going to be both a, a great king, and a suffering servant, and a shepherd, and a sacrifice, and so on and so on and so on? And Jesus is saying, by coming close to me, by listening to me, by hearing the parables and asking, what do they actually mean? You're getting to see what all these people of old 
long to see. And that's exactly what the psalmist in Psalm 78 is beginning to do. And Jesus is saying, I'm continuing that. So Matthew sees, so what was fulfilled, so was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Jesus is unlocking the truth of God's history, God's rescue plan, so that people might uh, see more of the wonder of how God is going to save his people. And so the principle of the parables is, come close, listen to Jesus, and let him explain things that were already there in the Old Testament, but are fulfilled in Jesus, and unlock the whole meaning of life. And so let's go back and look at these couple of parables. And I have to say, I've struggled a little bit. And Lucy would uh, tell you, if you eavesdropped over our lunchtime conversation, I came back pretty despondent and disheartened um, because I've been really struggling. They're very, very short parables. And I've been thinking, I'm really struggling to understand them. They're very simple on one level. And yet, there's so much potential depth there, but Jesus doesn't explain them. And actually, I've found that reality that Jesus talked about coming through in my prep, which is that parables are there both to reveal, you walk close to the automatic doors, you ask him what's there, and they open, but also to conceal. They're confusing. Um, So you might remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the sower just in isolation and tried to work out what it tells us about God. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. just tells us some agricultural principles. Um... Uh, but you come close and you let Jesus explain it to you. Um, and the privilege we have with the sower and with the weeds, as we'll see next week, is Jesus does explain it to us, so it becomes very, very clear. Um, but here we don't get an explanation, and I've struggled with that. And um, hopefully that struggle will encourage you, um, that actually we need to uh, listen to Jesus in all different aspects of what he speaks about. And then more and more these parables will become clear. Let's dive in. Verse 31. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like. Well, I'm just going to pause there. As I do quite a lot, you think it's about to get going, and then it stops again. What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of heaven? And um, this is again where we see this whole thing of the themes of the Old Testament uh, coming alive in Jesus. Uh, where he's uh, putting in the sort of central pieces of the puzzle so the whole, the whole thing comes together. And, and the theme of God's kingdom has been running right from the very beginning of the Bible, right from the time when uh, God promised to Abraham that Abraham would be, would be blessed with amazing descendants and that he would have descendants who would be God's people in God's place under God's loving rule and blessing. And that summary sentence of what is God's kingdom is a very helpful one that's uh, come from theologians like Graham Goldsworthy and someone called Vaughan Roberts, who's written a fantastic book. And if I had, which I thought I had on my shelf, a copy of Vaughan Roberts' book, I'd be holding it up here in my hand. So you need to imagine a copy of Vaughan Roberts' book, God's Big Picture, and maybe jot it down if you haven't read it. Because uh, what it does is kind of what Psalm 78 does, But in more detail, it it takes the whole of the history of the Bible and it shows you how it fits together, how God's rescue plan was promised and then began to be fulfilled but failed in the kingdom of Israel and so on and so on until we get Jesus and then what's going to happen next. It's called God's Big Picture. It's very simple, very 
um, readable, very well applied Bible overview. And when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about that rescue plan for God to bring people under his rule as the king. So God's people in God's place under God's loving rule and blessing. And the easiest way to understand what the kingdom is, is if Jesus is your king, if Jesus is your Lord, if you are seeking for him to explain to you how life should be lived in all its fullness and to obey him in everything, well then you are part of the kingdom. But if Jesus is this wonderful king, then the repeated sort of question that keeps coming back in Matthew 13 is, is why is the kingdom so small? Why is the kingdom so small? Uh, What should we expect? And so we get this first parable. And if you've got a little bit of paper in front of you and you want to make notes, um, you can. Um, I think we get a very simple point um, in this parable. That Jesus' kingdom has small beginnings, but incredible growth. Small beginnings, but incredible growth. So, verse 31, Jesus told them another parable. I'm going to keep reading here. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. Well, a mustard seed is smaller than a millimetre across. Probably something we see much more... Commonly, if you go to Greg's Bakers or whatever and buy a roll, it's poppy seeds. You know, there's little black poppy seeds on, on top of the roll. And if you were you know, eating your lunch and you're sitting at your table and, and, and breaking open the roll and, and 20 poppy seeds fell on the floor, you wouldn't sort of go, oh, quick, I've got to gather those up because they're so significant and big and I could you know, plant something amazing with one of those. And Jesus is saying the kingdom starts like that. It's like a tiny little seed. It, it, you just don't care if you lose it. You can overlook it. You might not even know it's there. If I held it in my hand here and was showing it to you, you wouldn't know whether I had it or didn't have it. Or whether I dropped it or not. So small and insignificant. So unlikely, it seems, to grow into anything worth being interested in. But Jesus says there's extraordinary power for growth. And you know, for those first disciples listening then, they would have thought, too right, it looks small and insignificant. But I just can't imagine it growing. But in some ways, it's much, much easier for us looking back, isn't it? That's just to see the the extraordinary rate of growth. You may have heard this very famous passage. I, I just thought of all the different ways I could describe the growth of the kingdom. And then I found this passage that I'd uh, read before, written by someone called James Aaron Francis, who's insignificant other than for having written this about Jesus. It's called One Solitary Life. He wrote it in the early 20th century. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a teenage peasant. He grew up in still another village, where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then, for three years, he travelled and preached. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never, had a big family. he never had a family or owned a house. He did not go to college. He never visited a big city. He never travelled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things we usually associate with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. 
He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a stake between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. The life of Jesus between my fingertips. You wouldn't even know if it had gone. It just seemed so insignificant, so pathetic. How could that have any power for growth? And yet, James Allen Francis continued, 2,000 years have come and gone, and all the armies that ever marched, all the fleets that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of people on this planet so much as that one solitary life. It's true, isn't it? It's just amazing that from those early beginnings, those 11 disciples left on the hillside when Jesus ascended to heaven, has come two billion people who say that Jesus is their king today. It's just amazing. And that's all the point of the parable is. Just trust that as Jesus' message of the kingdom goes out, it will produce extraordinary growth. But at the same time, this parable frustrated me. This is the, the, the concealing bit. Just read with me verse 32 again, because I stopped before I finished. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, Jesus says, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. That's where I stopped. So that's true of a mustard seed. So um, I did lots of research on mustard seeds because I thought, I haven't seen a mustard tree. And um, you can go online and pretty much all the things, if you type in what is a mustard tree, are sort of Christian stuff. And so it's hard to work out what is actually a mustard tree and what is just someone trying to um, gauge it. I think a normal mustard plant grows about this high. Um, it's got little yellow flowers on it, the one that Jesus was describing. It can grow about the height of that bean, height of that bean and that's about it. And its branches are, are quite flimsy. They're, they're thin branches like that. And so the, the thing that confused me is Jesus says, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And actually the literal translation is, the birds of the heavens come and nest in its branches. And I was looking at these flimsy mustard trees and even the big bushes of them. You're just thinking that birds aren't going to have a very easy time nesting in those unless they're really little birds. <laughs> what, what's Jesus talking about? And, you know, why didn't he use something a little more substantial? You know, like a, like a cedar seed, which is about that big, and that grows into things that do grow. But actually, this little phrase, the birds of the heavens come and nest in its branches, is an Old Testament illusion. For those who know their Old Testament, or who came close, and I'm sure if they asked him, Jesus, what were you referring to? Well, they would have taken, he would have taken them to, or they could have taken him to. Um, Ezekiel chapter 17 or Daniel chapter 4 where we get the description of a cedar tree the great cedars of Lebanon and they're used as a picture of the greatest empires that ever were the empires of Assyria and of Babylon and these great empires are described like a cedar that grows up and its branches spread out And it gets so big that all the birds of the air come and nest in its branches and all the beasts of the field come and dwell under its shade. 
And it's supposed to be a great blessing to all the nations around it. People are dependent on it like they are on big empires. Like, we're all, the whole world is dependent on the US economy, aren't we? Every time the US economy does that, every other economy does that. And these empires are like that. But they then get proud and they think that they themselves have created their own growth. And so the prophecy continues that they will be cut down and they'll collapse to the ground and they'll go to nothing and all the birds of the air will fly away and the beasts of the field will run away from under them. And Jesus is picking up that allusion to these great empires and he's saying, you know this little mustard seed, it's not just going to grow to a mustard plant size. No, there's going to be a kind of jack and the beanstalk miracle. It's going to grow and grow and grow and grow so that the birds of the air will nest in its branches. And unlike those great empires of Assyria and Babylon, and did you know that the great kingdom of Assyria, which was so massive and the most dominant empire at the time, uh, in the, until the mid-19th century, uh, historians tried to claim that it never existed, because it was so wiped out, it, the, the desert sands covered it, and then um, archaeological discoveries discovered it, and the Bible was proved right yet again. The kingdom of Assyria was a great empire. But it was destroyed to the point where people thought it might not have existed. And, you know, the Roman Empire's like that. You know, there's just a few statues around. You go to Rome and it's just a ruin. And the Italian economy isn't doing too great at the moment. But Jesus is saying that this kingdom is going to provide that extraordinary shelter. That his kingdom is going to be the most amazing place. That if you only come to him and see how great he is, however small and insignificant he might look, however pathetic his people might look, if you listen to him, well then, you'll find meaning and purpose and direction and shelter that will last for all eternity. So don't be like Ronald Wayne. Has anyone heard of Ronald Wayne? No? Well, the only thing that is famous about Ronald Wayne is that once... He owned a 10% stake in Apple. He was a co-founder with Steve Jobs of Apple. And about a month into sort of proper launching of Apple, he decided that it was just too risky because they, um, all the directors of Apple had sort of staked their lives on, on this company working and he had other assets that he thought might be lost if, um, uh, if the company plummeted. So he sold his share, his 10% share, for eight hundred dollars. Well, Apple is now the largest company in the world, I discovered. It's valued at seven hundred billion dollars. So his ten cent stake would make him one of the top five richest men in the world. And the only thing he's famous for is by thinking that something small and insignificant was not worth investing in and taking eight hundred dollars instead. Now, of course, in the grand history of things, that doesn't matter at all. But if we reject Jesus, more like we might drop a poppy seed on the ground, well then, we will be much more laughable than Ronald Wayne, who is now retired in a mobile home park in Nevada, USA. Because if you get involved in the broadcast of Jesus' message of the kingdom, if you listen to his word and spread his word, you are involved in the greatest investment scheme ever known to humankind. 
an investment scheme run by the God of the universe. Just think of the statistics of the small beginnings of um, Bible outreach, say, in Latin America. Back in 1910, there were 240,000 Bible-believing Christians in Latin America. There are today over 50 million. In Brazil alone, there are meeting today more Christians, Bible-believing Christians, in Brazil than in the whole of the UK and Europe put together. From such small beginnings, from a few missionaries in China who were then kicked out under Mao Zedong when there were definitely no more than a million Christians in China, probably many fewer. There are now between 70 and 100 million Christians in China. From tiny, tiny beginnings, this gospel can grow. But I thought it'd be good to pause here and for us to discuss in groups again, why do you think there's been such huge decline in the church in this country over the last 50 to 100 years? Why don't you just chat about that in the tables? Why do you think that people have stopped going to church in a so-called Christian country? reasons that you think why if Jesus' kingdom is supposed to grow and grow and grow why has there been such decline in this country any thoughts any ideas you were saying that Church of England in some of its forms has strayed from the gospel and so people aren't actually looking at Jesus anymore yeah. so no wonder Yeah, I don't I do think it's just the Church of England, actually. I think it's all the major denominations um, have wholesale abandoned the confidence that if you just tell people what Jesus said, then it'll do something very powerful. That's a big thing. Um, so if you just have a look at uh, verse 18, uh, verse 19, sorry. So Jesus talking about the meaning of the parable of the sir. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means when anyone hears the message about the kingdom. And then he describes that message as the word, the word, the word, the word, the word. We saw that last week, didn't we? So the key thing for the kingdom to go out is for the message of the kingdom to go out, for Jesus' words, because he's calling people to listen. Anyone who has ears to hear, let them hear, he's saying. It's all about listening to Jesus. And the reason, I think, that, the, that people have stopped going to church in this country 
is because the churches have stopped telling people what Jesus says. Because where you get Bible teaching churches who are telling people what Jesus says week in, week out, in a way that is easy to understand and helps us to grapple with it and enables us and encourages us to go out with that message, then you get transformation. And so let's look at uh, the next parable. So back to verse 33. Jesus told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed it about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. I've entitled this one, very simply, Small Beginnings, but Incredible Influence. You could call it Incredible Transformation, Incredible Change. Now, I struggled with this parable, because on one level it's very, very simple, isn't it? Um, So you imagine 30 kilograms of flour, that's a lot of flour, so one bag of one kilogram of flour is about that, so 30 times that. It's a lot more than anyone make in an average bread-making session, unless they're actually a baker. And she just takes a very small amount of yeast, and she works it through the whole dough. And that dough, which is a little better than glue, I, I used to make glue as a child with flour and water, um, <laughs> uh, is transformed into, into bread. And um, I, I looked at some stats as I was working this out, and apparently you can use as little as 0.5% yeast, um, so that's one in 200. Um, and I wondered whether... Um, welcome. Um, I wondered whether Jesus was saying that you can be as, as few as one in 200 and actually have a transformative effect on society. Um, but then I also got confused here, and this is where the sort of revealing and concealing of the parables happens. I got confused because every other time, pretty much, that yeast is used in the Bible, it's used as a negative thing. So Jesus is talking about beware the yeast of the Pharisees. And that all stems right back from the Passover, when, um, as a picture of getting rid of sin in the lives of the Israelites, they were told to get rid of yeast, throw it out their house, and use unleavened bread, as in unyeasted bread, like pita bread, flat bread. And... um, uh, And that was supposed to be a picture of them sort of cleansing themselves from sin and starting afresh. And so every year, the Jewish people at the time of Passover (coughs) would take the yeast that's in their house, and actually they had it in the form of like sourdough. Has anyone made a sourdough loaf, a friendship loaf? Have you heard of that? Where you have a little bit of dough with yeast in it. And because yeast is a living, active thing, do you know that? It's not just a chemical, it's it's a kind of bacteria and enzyme. And it grows and grows. And so if you add a bit to more dough, then penetrates. And every year the Jewish people would throw that out and they'd have to start afresh. They'd have to go back to the natural yeast that grew on the skins of grapes and so on. And the reason for that was saying, look, we're trusting again in the Passover lamb, the lamb who's died for us, and we're getting rid of the yeast. And I was thinking, so why is Jesus using what is mostly a negative thing? Um, What is mostly a negative thing? Why is he using it as a positive thing here? Now, the reason I tell you all that is just to step back a little bit and remember that the parables are there both to reveal and to conceal. And as we dig deeper, I think what what ended up happening is I I read more of the Bible um, and more of what Jesus says about yeast and started looking everywhere. And I'm still a little bit confused, as you can probably tell. But... I. 
Lucy really encouraged me at lunchtime when I was saying, I'm just feeling so confused about this parable. Um, in many ways it's very simple, but then there's this complication of is it a negative thing or a positive thing? But what I found myself doing was getting to know God better in his word. And you see, that's what the parables are doing. Some of them are very clear because Jesus explains them. Some of them uh, are very, very simple and positive and uh, very easy to understand. Some of them have this little hidden meaning like the yeast thing. And actually theologians have debated it for years. But the best thing about the confusing stuff is that it forces you to go back to what Jesus says that is so clear and say, could he be meaning this or could he be meaning that? Oh, I didn't realise he said that. That's fantastic. I wouldn't have discovered that hadn't I, if I hadn't asked the question about whether he meant that. And you see, you're getting to know Jesus better and better. And he's encouraging us by his parables to dig in deep. Now, I'm going to take a step back from there and just go for the, the really simple meaning, which is the absolute sort of obvious truth that you take 30 kilograms of flour. No one likes eating flour on its own. You add yeast and water. The yeast transforms the flour and suddenly you get this amazing bread that can feed hundreds of people. And that tiny little bit of yeast, um, as little as a sachet or something, can transform a whole loaf. And the point is, when the message of the kingdom goes out, even though it's got such small beginnings, it can transform and transform and transform. And the reason I wanted to think about why this country no longer sees people going to church as much as it used to, was to focus on that thing. If you take the message of the kingdom out of a nation that thinks it's Christian, and it will very quickly not be Christian anymore. And that happened, that has happened in the history of this country many, many times. And one of the most famous times that that happened was um, towards the... uh, So after the Reformation, there was huge revival back in the 16th, 17th century. And then at the end of the 17th century, end of the 1600s, beginning of the 1700s, what happened was um, the major denominations in England, um, by this time non-conformists were allowed to exist, so non-Church of England people, um, uh, both them and the Church of England people stopped telling people the basic message of Jesus week in, week out. And so what happened was massive decline. And in the Church of England, it, it became famous that country squires who would be sort of in charge of their local parishes were known as being sodden with alcohol. And the, the gentry who oversaw the clergy were known as being six-bottle men in the early 1700s. Six bottles of port, that is. Now, I think they probably were smaller bottles of port, but, but you can imagine that people drinking six bottles of port a day are not going to be much use to society, let alone to their churches. And, um, and then what, what happened also was that the, the clergy were, tended to be the youngest sons of the gentry. So if you were the eldest son, you'd inherit the estates. If you were a middle son, you um, might go off and be a lawyer. If you were the youngest son, you'd become a clergyman like me. I am actually the, the youngest son of a gentleman, so I'm fitting with that, um, with that theme. <laughs> um, and, but it was a way to get the money, because the, um, the, the, the gentlemen of the estates owned the um, control of the parishes, they dictated um, where the clergy would live, and they lived in nice houses, and they got decent salaries. And they'd turn up once a week. And um, uh, J.C. Ryle, writing a history of, of that time, said the only consolation is that they preached to empty pews. And the state of this nation, which was so called Christian country, as David Cameron still likes to claim that we are, was 
just going down and down and down. And without all the social structures that we have now, and with sort of dangerous government introductions like that of Jin, the country really started to go down here. So in the early 1700s, I don't know if this is interesting you or not, but I'll just keep going. In in the early 1700s, the government changed the licensing laws um, because there was a big uh, battle going on with France, and they didn't want to import anything from France, and loads of brandy was being imported from France. And so the government said, well, let's stop French brandy by introducing something here, and the thing they introduced here was gin. And so you could very cheaply produce gin, and it got sent out and people were making loads of money selling gin. So much so that you could see on the streets of pretty much any town in England these signs, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence, as in two pennies, clean straw for nothing. Just that clean straw for nothing. So people would go to the taverns or just to a barrel on the street from a street seller and they'd get a glass of gin and a clean straw and they'd just drink gin through a straw until they were drunk or dead drunk. And the, um, uh, the novelist at the time, Henry Fielding, was looking onto this and seeing how all the poor people were being exploited in this way. And he said, um, if, uh, if the trajectory continues at this rate, within 20 years there won't be any poor people left to drink the gin that's being drunk now. And famous stories came about through people from people like Dick Turpin, about people like Dick Turpin, who's a famous highwayman of the time, and everyone was very excited about him, and he used to just steal people's horses and, and rob from the rich and not give to the poor. Um, but he was, um, you know, th- those were the kind of heroes of the day. And off were the, the clergy, hunting and getting drunk. And the key thing was that there was no teaching of the word of God. And a famous bishop at the time, the Bishop of Carlisle, said, the church here is quite demolished in a very ill state. And that's where England was in about 1750 to 1760. And then there was a massive revival, a huge transformation. And the people who are most famous are are John Wesley and George Whitfield, um, who were wonderfully converted Um, even while they were studying theology. Can you believe that? They went forward to study theology, unconverted men, not really believing and trusting in the word of Jesus. And they were converted during that time. And then they went out, not just into the churches, but out where the people were, out to the coal miners, out to the workers in the fields. And there was a huge revival. And everyday people, like you guys, were going back into their workplaces and talking about the word of God. And they were spreading the message of the kingdom. And there was a massive transformation. The nation genuinely changed. And huge social reforms came out of it. Famous converts were people like William Wilberforce. And then next generation down were Lord Shaftesbury and so on. And these people brought in amazing social reforms, ended slavery, um, brought in laws to help poorer people, uh, closed the workhouses, built houses so that um, those who were living in slums could have somewhere to live. The nation was changed. And many of the things that we see as British values today came about in that time. And the question is, what will happen if we continue with the decline uh, that we have at the moment? But the key principle is that unless the word of God goes out and changes lives, then a society won't be changed.
Well, as I close, um, I think it would be good to just refocus again on the, the key teaching points here. I've been a little bit all over the place. I hope it's helped you seeing how sometimes you really struggle with, with sermon prep. But the very clear things are these principles. Firstly, the kingdom of heaven is where Jesus is king. And so, is Jesus your king? Are you trusting him? Are you listening to him? Are you working together to hear his words, to get to know him better? To let him explain to you how life fits together? To go to parables like this and just be dissatisfied for a bit? Think, unless I really understand this, I'm not going to stop. And allow him to open up different parts of your word. Yeah, different parts of his word. Are you trying to do that in those one-to-ones? How are those going at the moment? How's your one-to-one going at the moment? In terms of reading with someone. That's our aim in the church, that everyone in the church would be reading the Bible one-to-one with another person. Because I'm under no illusions that you're going to get everything you need from this half-an-hour sermon. No way. We need to also not worry about whether we look impressive, about whether we get everything right about the exact format of the service or the music or the style or the venue. In many ways, those things really do matter. And for me, personally, lots of little things bug me. And I think, oh, if only we could do it differently like this, and only if we had that resource or this resource, and so on and so on and so on. But actually, no, all we need, all we need is that little poppy seed, that little mustard seed, the message of the kingdom. We need to keep coming back and focusing on Jesus and his word. And we need to think most carefully about how we do that. And everything else, how that helps us to do that. How when we sing and sing praises to God, we're speaking the truth in love to one another through those psalms, hymns and spiritual songs in gratitude in our hearts. And then we must make sure we keep listening to Jesus by doing what he tells us to do, which is keep introducing him to other people. Do you remember last week we were looking that the good soil produces a crop? And that crop isn't other converts, but it is taking the message of the kingdom out. It's more seed, more seed, more seed going out. Because when it's when people hear about Jesus and come to know Jesus that they and the world begins to change. So why don't we pray that that would be more and more of a reality? And then make sure we're discussing it all the way through. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you give us these little parables that on one level are so, so simple. And yet also have incredible depth and force us to ask tricky questions. And we pray that you might help us to keep coming back to you and to seek you, not just an intellectual knowledge, not so that we might be able to say we know this verse and that verse or that part of the Old Testament and this part, but that as we listen to your word, as we study more deeply, as we try and work out what you're saying, that we would genuinely know you better, know you personally, and that we would experience the riches of this wonderful kingdom with you as our King. In your name, Amen.